I don't know about you, but some days I wake up and I'm ripping and roaring and ready to face the day. And other days, I look out at the great world around us and I see all the hardship, I see all of the the pain and all of the injustice that surrounds us in this world. And I just feel like, how are we going to overcome the great hurt that is all around us? Some of the things that I see in our society, and, and you know, I praise the Lord for America. Our society is not afflicted by as many sins as many places in the world are. The Lord has done some great things here, but there are still so many things that are crooked about the place that we live. When I look around and I see uh, our senior citizens in America, so many of whom are forgotten and left unloved by their families, so many of these people that we are to honor and cherish and support, who supported us in our younger years, are often just forgotten. Uh, There are so many places where people who are older They're never visited, they're never called, they're never prayed for. I just feel like this is such a grave injustice in our society, how so many people take so lightly uh, the the honor of those who are older and in the last years of their lives. Uh, When I see babies aborted, the legislation that is passed that makes this legal and accessible to people, breaks my heart to know that the most vulnerable individuals in our society are the ones that that are killed most frequently by the, the twisted heart of man who doesn't want to be burdened by the, the, the hardship or the responsibility of raising a child. My heart breaks for these little ones. When I see people in poverty uh, who instead of being helped are, are being given a lottery where they think they can go and pay a few of their dollars, which they have so very few of, and they think that they're going to make the big time and get rich by this jackpot that, that always eludes their grasp. I see all this false hope in our society, and I just think, when is this injustice going to stop? How does it make you feel to live in a world where this kind of injustice exists? And how do you handle the frustration of not being able to solve these problems? That is what Ecclesiastes 7, verses 7 through 13 is going to contend with this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, open to chapter 7, verse 7 through 13. I will read. I hope that you will follow along as we prepare ourselves to receive what God has for us today. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning." And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Would you please bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to settle our hearts and minds and give us good knowledge this morning from his word. Lord God, we come confessing that we lack the wisdom that we need. We do not find understanding By searching our own hearts and souls, we don't find it by exercising our minds. We find true knowledge and wisdom when you open our eyes, our eyes that we so readily have kept blind through ignorance and pride. Father, I pray that you would make us understand the things that we need to see, things that are spiritually discerned, things that can only come 
from the Father of lights in whom there is no change or shadow of turning. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us. We have made a mess of the world that we live in, and we don't have the power to undo that. And though we strain and strive to make the world a better place, Lord God, it seems that we solve one problem only to see another pop up. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would, you would comfort us with your word today, that you would give us insight in how we deal with the roller coaster of life, the ins and outs of, of hardship and then blessing and then good and then bad. Lord, help us to find peace in the midst of it all. I ask that you would minister to our fragile hearts today. Many of us are heartbroken. Many of us have a burden that we can scarcely bear, Lord God. And so we bring it to you and leave it at your feet today. I ask that the strength of your word would comfort us. I pray that it would give us a confidence beyond ourselves. Please keep the gospel before us, Lord. And help us to understand that the scriptures that we will study today in the light of the triumph of Jesus Christ, who has won a people for you. Thank you, God, for your election, for your perfect plan that will unfold exactly as you desire it to. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Last week, Solomon taught us that there can be goodness in grief, which is a good thing because there's a lot of grief in life. Getting a true perspective on the more heart-wrenching realities of life is not necessarily enjoyable, but can lead to greater good. Still, there is great frustration in living in a world where things are clearly wrong and we don't always have a solution or even an explanation for it. We see that brokenness described here in verse 13 is called crookedness. And I think that's a fitting term for it. I'm going to use that several times through this, this sermon today. We'll refer to this, this chaos in our world, this injustice, uh, this, this unrighteousness that plagues the world that we live in as a crookedness. And when we take stock to what is happening in the world around us, things don't seem to line up the way that we think they ought to. There's no real parity. Uh, a word that is often thrown about is life is not fair. And we see that. Some suffer more than others. Some who don't seem worthy of blessing receive great blessing in life. So how do we make sense of this inequity? Neither is life itself steady and constant, but instead it is constantly up and down, up and down, peaks and valleys, varying seasons, not all of which we are sure we can bear. And so our text today is primarily concerned with the way that we deal with this crookedness that seems to permeate life under the sun. How do we deal with the frustration of living in a world where so much injustice and oppression is evident all around us? The text that we're going to examine today, we're, we're going to tackle a number of scriptures, and it's going to make three primary points for us. And from those three points, we're going to derive several important applications. So before we even get into it, let me lay out what we're going to see today in the Scripture. First of all, we're going to examine verses 7 through 13, and in doing so, we will see that crookedness exists, and yet God is still sovereign. We're going to talk about how this seems to create a dilemma for us. God is all-powerful and could erase the effects of our mistakes, and yet He allows them to persist. Why is that? Secondly, Crookedness is not consistent with God's character. He is not a crooked God, but God is able to use the crookedness of this world to accomplish His will. Though this sin persists and though there seems to be injustice all around it, God can even work through that to produce holy ends. 
And then thirdly, all the crookedness of the world cannot be erased until it has served the purposes for which God has allowed it. In His sovereignty, God will utilize what has become of creation, including its flaws, to produce His perfect will for us. And so turning our attention first to verse 7, we're going to see how frustrating it is to deal with the lack of parity and fairness in the world. It says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And so we see here described in this two-part proverb two different hazards that we have to try to negotiate, navigate through as we live in this unjust world. First of all, the weak and the poor suffer at the hands of those who have secured an advantage for themselves. The ones who seem to be the most vulnerable in our society, the ones who need protection, are often the ones who are taken the advantage of the most. Instead of the strong looking out for the weak, often the strong exploit the weak and increase their hurt. The broken condition of things can drive a man who desires justice to madness as he tries to understand why all this takes place. Why can't I prevent the world from being such a crooked place? Even more concerning, how is God allowing it to be this crooked in the first place? That's the first hazard, this hazard of just losing our minds because of the chaos that surrounds us. The second hazard is a little bit different. It seems like this problem that, that we have of injustice in the world cannot be solved. No matter how much effort's put into it, this crookedness seems to pop up again. And so with little hope of eliminating the problem completely, it is tempting to just give in to it. It is tempting to capitulate and to take the bribe of corruption ourselves in, hoping, in hopes of getting ahead of it. But if we allow ourselves to profit from this injustice, it will inevitably lead to a corruption of heart, to guilt and grief and distance from God. So those are two hazards that we have to be aware of as we deal with this world of corruption around us. Injustice poisons any society that is infected by it. And it leads to a multiplication of sin in the land. Eventually it will cause us harm. Even if we can avoid it for a time, eventually the injustice in the land will circle around and affect the ones that we love. It jeopardizes those who are close to us. And though we don't know how just, or just how to make this crookedness straight, we are aware enough to recognize that life could and should be better than it is. Which leads to one of the big picture questions that seems to hinder people from trusting the Lord. And if you've had spiritual conversations with those that you desire to share the gospel with, I have no doubt that you'll eventually run into this kind of a question from someone. If God is sovereign, if God is truly in control of all that He has made, then why does the world seem so out of control? Why does He not intervene and make all things right? Why should I worship a God who is in control when the, the world that He's supposedly controlling seems so chaotic? To address this age-old question, verse 8 reminds us that part of our frustration is a product of our perspective. Solomon says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than pr the proud in spirit. The end, the resolution of a thing, is better than the beginning. 
When we talked about this last week, you might remember verse 2 of chapter 7, Solomon said that it is better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. And we explained that that was not some morbid fascination with death, but rather in order to understand why life is the way that it is, we have to think about it from its end. We have to realize that there's a purpose to life, and God is bringing us to that purpose. Death itself is not something to pine for, but the end of our lives will have, at the end of our lives, we'll have a more clear perspective, a better faithful picture of what life was supposed to be about. The perspective that we have right now in the middle of life doesn't see the forest for the trees. It is not the best vantage point from which to understand what is really happening. So we run the risk, if you've ever started to read a book and you didn't really understand where it was going or how it was going to resolve, and then you put it on the shelf and you never came back to it. You're not not seeing the big picture of things. In order to really understand what this life is about, you have to consider the end of life because the end of a thing is better than its beginning. On Friday, we took a, a group of youth out to a giant corn maze in Lathrop. And if you've never seen this thing, it's impressive. It's 40 acres of corn that is grown up and then carved into a gigantic maze. We let the kids go through the maze. It happens at nighttime. It's a lot of fun. And when you go into the maze, uh, there's all these different patterns or pictures cut into the corn, and they give you a, a little card that has the whole map of the maze right there for you. And you just look at the card, and it seems so simple. You could take a pen, and you could go into the entrance, and you know any five-year-old could make his way through the maze and then back out again. But then you take your card, and you walk into the darkness of this tall, tall corn, and you don't see the maze and the patterns anymore. All you see is corn, <laughs> lots of corn. And every single pathway you go down, the turns all start to look the same. And the straights all sort of look the same. And you think to yourself, I've got a map here, yet I am utterly lost. I have no idea where I'm at in this mess of corn. And so you have to almost pay constant attention to the map. You almost have to like take two steps and then watch where you're at and figure out your bearings or else you're never going to make your way through. Or you do what just about everybody else does and just cut right through the corn because we're not talking about brick walls here, right? You just cheat, right? Just go right through the corn, go to where you want to be. But you can't do that in life, can you? You can't just cut through the maze of life and, and bypass the hard parts. God has put struggle and trial in our pathway for a reason. And so we, we must learn how to deal with these things. And we're not going to deal with it well if we don't understand that the end of the thing is better than its beginning. It's also better than the middle, by the way. Who has knowledge of the end of the thing? Who is completely aware of how all the struggles of this world and the hardships of life are going to turn out? Only our sovereign God has that kind of eternal perspective. So if we have any hope of making it through the middle of the story, we've got to trust the one who has the end already written out for us. The hand of God not only guides and directs, but he will make straight the paths that man has made crooked, but he will only do that according to his perfect timing not according to our personal preferences. How can a sovereign God allow injustice in the world if he has the power to stop it? Because he also has the power to make a greater good come from it in the end. Revelation. I'd like to direct your attention to chapter 21 of Revelation. You might remember that the Apostle Paul is 
taken up in a series of visions that God gives to him that describes the days to come, that describes the final state of our existence with the Lord God, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And so in Revelation chapter 21, after seeing many things and many struggles and trials that will afflict man, the Apostle John reports to us what he sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, appeared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Rest assured, God intends to make all things right with his creation. He doesn't give us the full end of the story yet, but like in Revelation 21, he will give us snapshots, little glimpses of what are to come. And so we've got to grab onto those instructions that he gives us in his word that promise us a better future, that help us understand that no matter how chaotic and messy it seems now, there will be a resolution, and that resolution will bring us great joy. He will not allow the corruption that can drive us crazy to persist forever, nor will he allow the temptation of bribery to trap us forever. But you might think, well, why doesn't he do it now? Why doesn't he use this power that he has? Why doesn't he complete this plan now? He has a very good reason, and that reason has to do with his great love for you. What is wrong with the world, friends? You and I, we are what is wrong with this world. When God created the heavens and the earth, there was no sin in it. It was mankind who invited sin in. It was mankind who rebelled against God. And it is every human being with the exception of Christ. Since that first sin occurred, every human being has fallen in the same trap. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. And so you and I are what is wrong with this world. In order for God to make the world right again, He would have to get rid of every sinful person, which is everybody. But instead, God has chosen to be patient, allowing the consequences of our sinful actions to play out in a way that we will see the proof that our sin is destructive and all who have been set aside for Christ will have time to repent and to return to the Lord before he brings that final judgment and makes straight every crooked path. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter. He says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in delaying punishment, God is preserving sinners like you and like me. He is preserving those people in your life who you know do not have trust and faith in Jesus Christ. He is giving time for them to repent. He is giving them an opportunity to see the light and to turn. There are many that He still intends to bring into His kingdom, 
Not one will be lost. And so he is taking however much time is necessary for those, repent, uh, those hearts to repent. Indeed, crookedness is not consistent with God's character. There is no injustice in God himself, but God is able to use this crookedness since it exists, since it is here, since we have brought it into his creation. He is able to use this crookedness as a means to direct and instruct his people in doing, and in doing so, he accomplishes his righteous will. Once our eyes are open to that careful and forward-thinking work that God is accomplishing, then we begin to see why verse 9 warns us about our quick reactions to injustice. Verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Since we don't have a full perspective of what is going on in this life, it would be healthy for us to be slow to anger, to not make quick snap judgments about whether God is doing his job or not because he's the only one who really knows what the job is all about. Our angry response to the existence of injustice that we are in part responsible for, right? Our angry response to the sins of this world can lead a man to feel as though he's not getting what he deserves from God. Anger is a very dangerous trap. Not all anger is wrong. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But we must be very careful because anger typically springs from a feeling that we are not getting what we deserve. It springs from a pride in us that thinks that we're not getting a fair shake at life. But in reality, friends, this is like a prison inmate complaining that the cafeteria food is not seasoned to his liking. He has earned himself confinement. He has forfeited many of his rights. How can he now complain over luxury? We too have earned the penalty of judgment. It is only by God's amazing grace that we can stand and live in this world and not be destroyed in a moment from His wrath, let alone hope for any kind of an easy or satisfactory path through this life. So we see how the gospel here is, is present in Ecclesiastes. We see that, that the, the truth that we should praise the Lord, that we don't get what we deserve. We should be grateful for the fact that God is not determined to make life fair because if life was fair, we would be punished for the things that we have done in opposition to God's word. This is why the drumbeat of our heart needs to be something greater than fairness. Our subjective ideas about what is fair are hugely skewed about what we think is best for us anyway. If we really cared about fair, we should be brokenhearted about the suffering and the crucifixion of Jesus who is the one, one pure example of life that we've ever seen. Christ, who never broke God's law, who should have been exalted above measure, was the one who suffered more than anyone, was the one who took the sin of the world upon his own shoulders and was beaten and mocked and abandoned by those who were closest to him. Is that fair? No, that is grace. That is the amazing love of God expressed to his people. And he loved us so much that he would send his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him and trust in his work would not perish but have an eternal life that is infinitely better than the temporary life we spend here on earth. To keep our frustration from, with this injustice in life from, from boiling over into an unjustified anger, we've got to learn to value God's timing. 
And in order to do that, we need to learn to wait for His will, which will be done in His timing. We've got to wait with patience. Remember the the verses that Brother James gives to us in chapter 1 of his letter, verses 19 through 20. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Friends, we've got to learn that the anger of man usually only produces the righteousness of man, which is far less impressive than the righteousness of God. Let us be slow to anger. Let us have patience in seeing what the Lord is doing in our lives. Instead of reacting adversely with a complaining heart every time something difficult comes into our lives, let us stop and wait. Let us see what God is going to do with the hardship that He has brought upon us. The God we worship is slow so that He might preserve us. We can imitate Him by being slow to anger ourselves. Overcoming anger means learning to embrace the fact that you don't get to script how your life is going to be. You've got to come to terms with that. You have to come to terms with the fact that God alone is the one who writes out the prescription for your future. Patiently waiting for God's will to unfold and for His justice to come in His timing will train our hearts to let God set the pace for our lives. It will remind us that He is the one who determines what we will experience in each and every season. If we are negligent in the way that we deal with our anger, if we let our pride well up to the point where we feel like God is going too slow or that His judgment is not complete enough, then our anger may very well lodge itself deep in our hearts, as the preacher says. This is what happens when we act foolishly towards the Lord God and we think we know better than He does. Anger becomes lodged in the heart. And what does that produce if it doesn't produce bitterness? If it doesn't produce a vengeance in our spirit. In verse 10, Solomon lines out another caution for his readers. He says, It is not wise to compare the former days to the current days. Be careful about this constantly thinking back to the glorious seasons, the easy times that God has given to you. He wants to broaden our perspectives even further by correcting this common error that we make in our frustration with the unfair state of life to treat the seasons that God has ordained for us as if we can pick and choose the ones that we really need. God knows what seasons we need to go through. So it isn't right for us to think about only the good times as from the hand of the Lord and not realize that also do the bad and difficult times in our lives come from His hand to direct us, to shape us, and to build character inside of us. I have a friend who is my same age. And uh, he's quite an athletic guy. We often play sports together. And one of the things that I have noticed as we have both grown older together is that every time we take the field, I limp off and he does not. I get hurt. Every time I go out and try to play like I'm 18, I find a way to pull a hamstring or hurt my groin muscle or, or, or somehow damage this body that I have. But he always walks off as if everything's fine. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because... When I think about stretching out or working out or doing calisthenics, it just doesn't seem all that glamorous to me, and so I don't do it. I want to skip the season of preparation and go right to the season of performance. But my friend, every night before he goes to sleep, he has a regiment. It doesn't take him too long, but he's diligent in it. He stretches out his entire body. In the morning, he gets up and he does just a few calisthenics, something to keep his body limber, something to keep him in better shape, 
And as a result of that, since he's willing to spend his time doing things that isn't really that glamorous and glorious that some might consider a hardship, he's willing to do that. He doesn't have to deal with the emergency room as often as I do. <laughs> we don't want to be bothered by the tough seasons. We don't want to appreciate the value that God has put into them. If you're in a difficult season of life, though, and things seem crooked, don't waste your time pining for those seasons when God was choosing to give rest and resolution. It is foolishness to yearn for what God has sovereignly ordained not to give you right now. And it denies that the Lord has good cause for whatever you're dealing with in the present. All the crookedness of the world cannot be erased, no matter how much effort we put into it until it has all served the purposes for which God has allowed it. And since the flaws of the world will persist until God sees fit to redeem creation, it would help us to begin to appreciate the lessons that we take from the conditions that we have to endure in this imperfect world. That is the thrust of our last three verses this morning. Verses 11 and 12 do us most good when we see them as an expansion on the wisdom that was laid out for us in verse 10. They seem a little bit out of place. When you just read this straight through, you say, all of a sudden we're talking about money now. Why is he talking about investments and, and wisdom with money? That doesn't seem to fit. He's, he's doing something that's very common in the wisdom proverbs. He's helping us understand something that is complicated and maybe foreign to us by teaching us about something we already understand and showing us how those two things relate together. So in verse 11, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. How many of you received an inheritance before? Some of you are really hoping that you do one day. Inheritance is a windfall of financial riches that you didn't have to necessarily work for yourself. It's something that is gifted to you from the hand of someone else. And all too often, I've seen people who receive a financial windfall, many of whom were going through dire situations. They were really strapped for cash, and suddenly the Lord has blessed them, and there's this, this great lump sum of money, a, a, a sum of money that could solve their problems. They could pay off their debt so that they're no longer saddled with financial burden now. They can save for a time of greater need that's coming up either seen or unforeseen in the future, because sometimes you don't know what kind of calamity is around the corner. They could invest that money in a way that it will grow rather than letting it burn a hole in their pockets by running around spending it on fleeting pleasures. But how many of those people that I know who have gotten a windfall go out and spend it on the first shiny thing that catches their eye? They don't spend it wisely. They're not careful with it. And as a result, it does them really no lasting good in their lives. Friends, the difficult times of trial that we go through are like an investment for us. They're like a windfall that God gives of knowledge, of wisdom, of grace. When we suffer and struggle through the difficult times of life, do we try to get out of it as quickly as we possibly can, or do we sit within it and learn from it? Do we let the Lord God shape us and mold us through the pressures and the, and the hardships that we go through? Wisdom is, in a way, like money. We, we hear here that money protects those who use it wisely, and that's obvious to us, right? We get that. If you've got money put away, then what if something goes wrong? If you have a, a medical emergency or something 
uh, happens, an earthquake perhaps, and your, your home needs some repairs, well then that money that you have stored aside can now be used in that time of need. And wisdom can function like that if we value it the way that we should. Listen to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her, from wisdom, is better than gain from silver, and her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing that you desire can compare with her. That is the high view that wisdom has in Proverbs. We can view wisdom as an agent of protection. Like money, wisdom can help us to sidestep calamity. Knowledge has a great advantage. It preserves the life of the one who has it and is able to exercise it in a discerning way. But not if we just scramble to get out of every difficult situation that God puts us in and we never let him use those situations to teach us how to grow, to teach us patience to teach us that even this too will pass. Rather than complaining that we are not in the great season that we used to be in, rather than lamenting where life's winding and crooked path has brought us to, can we learn to take the knowledge and wisdom that we store up from earlier seasons and apply it to what we have to endure in the present? If I've gone through a loss before and I didn't go through that loss well, is it a waste or can I look back on that time and think, how did I handle that? Did I, did I deal with that hardship properly? Maybe I lost something great. And instead of going to my church family for care and support, I isolated myself. In depression, I didn't want to do anything, so I just hold myself up in the house. Maybe I, I just felt sorry for myself all the time. I wondered if God really loved me. Maybe that's how I dealt with that issue before. And where did it get me? Did that help me at all? I can see the negative effect of it if I look back on my past and watch what God has done to make me into the person that I am today. And then I ask myself, what can I do differently in the next season when God brings pain and suffering again? What can I do in that next season to, to use the wisdom and the knowledge that God has given to me in such a way that I might not have to suffer as much, in such a way that I might shine more brightly as a testimony of faith in Him and in perseverance in the faith. And I'm going to take a second to address fathers here today as well. And this is probably because I just went to a men's conference last week and it's fresh on my heart. But fathers, do you know what, what a critical role God has put you in, in your family? Do you know the job that he has given to you? Ask yourself as we think about this lesson of dealing with hardship and calamity, do you as a family just sort of get through it? Or do you see those as opportunities to take advantage of the leadership role that God has given to you that you might guide your family through the hardships of life? Can we learn to lead our sons and daughters, our wives, in this distinctly different way of perceiving trials? Can we identify rough waters even before they get to us? Are we, are we paying close attention to life? And, and when we see a, a potential hardship coming, do we set our families down and say, listen, things may get difficult in the days to come. I want to let you know that if if we have to go through hardship, we don't need to be afraid. The Lord God is good. He has provided for us before. He will provide for us again. Let's see what God has to teach us through that. Father, if you sat down with your family and did that before you got to a financial hardship or before you got, got to a time where someone in the family gets sick and you've got to take on more responsibilities, don't you think it would help them to see the hand of God at work 
in what seems to be chaos? Don't you think it would help them to see the end of the story, which is so much better than the beginning? Fathers, can we prepare ourselves to steady the family when we go through those difficult times? Can we teach our sons and daughters the word? Can we show them that this is where our strength comes from so that when our little ones grow up and become men and women, when hardships inevitably come to them, that they will know where to turn because daddy went to God's word because my father sought his strength and wisdom in the book that God has given to us. Can we reflect on a difficult season? Once we've gotten through it, do we sit down and really think in hindsight about what God accomplished through that difficult season? Do we give glory to the Lord, even for the hard times in our lives, knowing that we are better off now because we've seen Him work in our lives through those things? By doing so, we invest wisely in the souls of those who are closest to us, that are so dear to us. And we treat this resource of experience and knowledge and wisdom in a way that will do us great good the next time we face a challenge. Verse 13 draws a summary conclusion to the big idea of the passage. In regards to God's work, Solomon asks, who can make straight those paths that God has made crooked? This echoes, should sound familiar to us, because this is an exact repetition of Ecclesiastes 1.15. might not be able to remember that far back, but in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon writes, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, vapor, and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And so we see a consistency in thought flowing through the text of the book of Ecclesiastes. This book is not an exasperated spiral down into depression. It's a systematic proof of what God has revealed to be true about His will and about the limits of humanity. So there's a reason why the Lord has permitted the crookedness that we see about us. If it is in his design, no amount of struggle or complaint is going to overcome it or stop him from doing it. And if we can come to trust the infinitely wise hand of our Father, why would we want to overturn what God is going to work out towards our good? We can see this illustrated pretty vividly, I think, in the history of Israel, God's chosen people. Now, Israel, I think all of us would agree, are people who have had to go through tremendous hardship. They, they have had to go through setback after roadblock, after difficulty, after loss. We, we, we see it in the 400 years that they had to spend as slaves in Egypt. Remember, this is God's chosen people. These are the ones to whom God covenanted to give a special place of their own. And yet, for 400 years, under that promise... They were slaves serving another culture, another people. We see it in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. God frees them from that slavery, and then for 40 years, they, they don't have a home still. They're still having to try to trip their way through the wilderness and, and rely on God day by day, not knowing how they're going to eventually get to the place that He has promised, no, not, not, not knowing how He's going to fulfill those promises that He made in His covenant. But eventually God does lead them into that holy land, doesn't He? God subdues every enemy. David, in his expertise in battle, makes sure that every single front in Israel is secure. They experience a great financial uh, period of prosperity. 
Solomon recounts the great riches that he amassed for Israel and, and the stability that it gave them, the security that it gave them as a nation. God gave them peace. He gave them great influence. We read that other rulers would come to Solomon hoping to gain wisdom from him. And so he became a, a kind of world power. And that peace lasted all of two kings, David and Solomon. And then what happens? The people of Israel and their sin and their infighting split. And the nation of Israel is divided into the northern and the southern kingdom. And we have a series of kings that range from terrible to not so terrible that follow after David and Solomon. With a couple of good ones thrown in there. What I'm getting at here is this. God made things great. He brought them to wonderful circumstances. He made straight their paths for a time, but that didn't end the strife of life. It didn't solve the heart of man. So what we should be pining for is not for God to just give us an easy and carefree and blessed life because that's not where the great blessing comes from. Despite the nation taking a turn for the worst, the remnant of God, those faithful Israelites who never turned away from Him, were able to seek God through the season of calamity, even in their exile. They were able to draw from what God had shown His covenant bride in days past to fortify their hearts in the present. They were able to hold on to those promises and look forward to a better future and to remember that life had not always been a struggle and strife. God had proved faithful to His covenant people before and He would prove faithful to them again. And so our goal should not be to eradicate every hardship of life, to improve in our efficiency and streamline our processes so that no one has to struggle. That's not what God is using this life for. That's not the pattern that He has set for us. That does not mean that we turn a blind eye to injustice and simply claim, I guess that's just how God is growing us right now. I guess we're just going to let human trafficking exist. I guess we're just going to let the elderly be neglected. That doesn't matter because God's going to use it for His good. No, we can't think that way. We need to love what God loves we need to pursue justice to the best of our ability. It doesn't mean that we respond coldly to those who are hurting, to those who are in a severe season in life. No, we owe compassion to our brothers and sisters. We owe mercy to our neighbors. We should weep with those who weep. It doesn't mean that we should in any way seek to bring calamity or harm upon ourselves so that God will grow us up and make us stronger. Every day has enough hardship of his own. We don't have to make things harder for ourselves simply means that we should strive to treat God as if we sincerely believe that He is sovereign and that He is working all things to our good and to His glory. We've been touching on ways that we might apply this truth throughout the, our time together this morning, but let's conclude and review. We live in a world where crookedness abounds, but we should not get caught off guard by that nor should we allow the corrupt state of life here on earth to embitter our hearts. Let us be instead slow to anger, for our perception of the state of the world does not comprehend the depth of what God is really accomplishing. He can even use the sinful injustice of man to further grow our love for him and our longing for the better country that he has in store for us. Remember that God is sovereign. And trust that the crooked path that you are on eventually leads to a destination that will result in your good if you have called on the name of Christ. Adapt a big picture view 
of the ups and downs of life. See that there are things that you can carry from one season to the next that might help you along the way. Wisdom and knowledge that have been a blessed deposit in your mind and in your heart that can strengthen you for the next phase of God's plan for you. Do not spend so much of your energy trying to solve the problem of your current season, so much so that you miss out on the reason that the problem was allowed to exist in the first place. If God has put it in front of you, trust God to not only help you endure it, but to learn and grow from it so that you're better prepared for the next challenge that life brings. I leave you, church, with the wonderful words of Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through, or 18 through 21, where Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, it is not easy to say thank you for the hardships of life. It is so much easier to praise you for the many blessings that are obvious to us, Lord, but God, we need to learn to say thank you for whatever you bring every day of life that you choose to give to us. Father, if you have ordained for us to be in a season of trial and hardship, comfort us in the knowledge that we don't have to bear that alone. Remind us that the word can be a wonderful resource of knowledge and goodness to us. Help us to see the love that the body of Christ has for your people and let us feel supported. Keep us from loneliness and despair, Lord God. But remind us also that there is great good that comes from every kind of suffering that you allow us to endure. Lord God, no matter how much we go through in this earth, we could never even imagine suffering as much as Jesus Christ willingly suffered on our behalf. And so let our great comfort and joy be seen in the cross and in the empty tomb and in the truth that he who suffered for us has overcome the death that we deserve to pay to you from our sin. Lord God, give us a great boldness, therefore, to face every trial every day with confidence knowing that you truly are sovereign and that though we have made this world crooked, Lord, you will straighten everything out in your time. So God, give us a supernatural patience that reaches and extends beyond our natural patience, Lord God. Let us seek to be filled with your spirit so that we might even testify to your goodness, not just when blessings are raining down upon us, Lord God, but even when you have directed us, your sheep, to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, because we know ultimately where you're taking us to. God, help us to endure until we get there. And we pray these things in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.